So it's good to be back. It's really good to be here. Um, I'm Ian. If you don't know me, I'm one of the teaching pastors here. It's good to have you with us if you're tuning in. Um, where am I? What are we doing? Let's get into the Bible, huh? If you've, uh, if you've brought a Bible, great. If you don't have a Bible, there's one that should be in the pew right in front of you. Uh, and we're going to be, if you grab one of the Bibles in front of you, page 895, we're going to be in John chapter 8. We're going to be closing out John chapter 8. And I have to bring this up and, and maybe even apologize a little bit. Um, I had prepared a, this sermon for Redbird the day that I came down with my fever. And so Pip came and saved the day and led a, a prayer group here for Redbird at the 6 p.m. service that we have here and uh, saved my bacon. So I still had this, this sermon, uh, but then Zion preached on this text the following week. And so for the 12 of you that were at Redbird that night, some of this might be a little repetitive, and I didn't listen to what, uh, to what, John, to what uh, Zion preached that day, but um, I trust that he and I are different enough that we might, we might pull a couple of different things out of this. So if you will, turn with me to John 8. We're going to read from verse 48 to the end of the chapter. And the Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? And Jesus said, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. And the Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. And yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he'll never see death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets who died? Who do you make yourself out to be? And Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day, and he saw it and was glad. And so the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old, and you've seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And so they picked up stones to throw at him, but he hid himself, and he went out of the temple. Bow with me for a quick word of prayer, please. Jesus, every, every time I'm up here or anywhere and I open up your word, there's a certain amount of me that is terrified. Because this is your word, and it would be blasphemous of me to take your word and to make of it something of my own creation, of my own opinion, of my own thoughts, of my own conclusions. Lord, we're here to, to, to listen to your word, to hear, to hear your word. And so we pray by the, by the power of the Holy Spirit that you might move in our hearts and convict us and comfort us to grow us, to mature us, that we might learn, that we might realize, that we might love, grow in our affection for you and our devotion to you and our trust of you and our hope in you and our comfort in you. Please, Jesus, be here this morning with your, with your comforting presence. In Jesus' name, amen. So my wife wrote this quote down some time ago, and she put it on a sticky note, and she and she stuck it on my desk, and 
<clears throat> I saw it a couple days ago and I thought, this is perfect for what we're going to talk about today. It's a quote by Flannery O'Connor, who's a prolific author who has, who has passed some years ago, but she wrote a lot of really great books, and she's quoted as saying, the truth doesn't change according to our ability to stomach it. And right she is, and it seems as if that is a, a concept that our culture, my generation, has a really hard time dealing with. <clears throat> the idea of objective truth. This is true, it's always true, it will always be true. It doesn't matter how you feel, it doesn't matter what you think, what you prefer, what your opinion is. This is always true. And some of those things are very basic and, and sort of without a whole lot of consequence. Like it doesn't matter how you feel about gravity. If you jump off something tall, you will go down. It doesn't matter if you don't like it. It doesn't matter if it makes you uncomfortable. It doesn't matter how you feel about water. You can't live in it. Even if you have some apparatus like a, like a scuba tank, you've got yourself an hour at best. You need oxygen. Doesn't matter how bad you want to be a fish. But there's things that our culture tries to take that is objective truth and, 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 and tries to avoid it, tries to mix it around. They try, try to make truth malleable, try to make it more palatable. And if they, can't, if, they, if, if they can't get around it, they try to avoid it at all costs. It's a problem that our culture has. It's a problem that in my generation, I'm 35 years old, and I have seen growing up with my peers, I have seen years and years and years of this, well, I, I don't like that, so I'm going to ignore it. This is true for me, but that doesn't mean it's true for you, or this is true for you, and that doesn't mean that it's necessarily true for me. And some of those things are true. Some things are just opinions, and they're just preferences, but there is objective truth that you have to deal with, and my culture, the culture in Portland, Oregon, the generation that I grew up with, has a really hard time with that. And because of that, John chapter 8 is really difficult for some people, because Jesus comes in, and he tells the truth. And he says some things that are really hard to hear. He says some things that, are, that seem maybe kind of brash or mean or judgmental. And as I was, as I was studying for this text, I actually came across one of the commentators who, who, who came to John chapter 8. Some of the things that Jesus says. And this commentator actually wrote, I don't really know what to do with this Jesus. Where's the gentle Jesus, the compassionate Jesus, the kind Jesus, the loving Jesus? Because here, I mean, he calls him a liar. All of chapter 8, he says things that are really kind of, they seem almost out of character. Because they're, they're harsh. They're, they're kind of raw. They're kind of in your face. He says things that are like, wow, that, where did that come from? Why would you say that to me? But we have to remember who Jesus is all the time, and we have to get real with what Jesus is doing. One of the, one of the ways that this, I, I think about this, it helps me kind of wrap my mind, and I'm going to camp on this for a while because I really want to make this point clear. I came up against a very objective hard truth for the first time that I can remember that I was like, I don't want to deal with this, oh, but it's real, and I have to, but I want to get around it, but I can't. It was in the seventh grade, and in the seventh grade, I broke my left arm really bad. I broke, it was, a, it was an awesome break. I had a wrist right here in the middle of my arm. And so I had to go to the hospital. And I got to the hospital, and they said, well, you know, your, your bones are smashed to bits, so what we're going to have to do is 
we're going to put a mask over your face, and we're going to put you to sleep. And then we're going to take a very sharp knife, and we're going to cut you open on two different sides of your arm. And we're going to take the bones, and we're going to put them back together, and we're going to take this six-inch titanium rod, and we're going to put it over your bones, and we're going to drill screws. We're going to, screws, we're going to put screws into the titanium plate to hold your bone together, and then you're not going to be able to ride your, your skateboard for six weeks, which is not part of the... I didn't actually obey that at all. Mom, I'm sorry. But if that's not enough, they said, because you're a young boy and your body is still growing at, at pretty quickly, one year from now, you're going to have to come back. And we're going to have to cut you open again on those same spots where we cut you open before. We're going to have to put you asleep, cut you open, and we're going to have to take those titanium plates, and we're going to have to remove them. And you're going to have six little holes in each one of your bones, and so you can't ride your skateboard for another six weeks after that. It was awful. It was, I was like, you, you, you're going to have to cut me open. You're going to have to put me to sleep. I'm going to be completely out of, I have no control over that whatsoever. Can't you just, like, pull my arm straight till it pops and wrap it up, and I'll just hold real still for six weeks, I promise. Don't cut me. Don't go deep. Don't go too far into the surface. I was uncomfortable. But I had to deal with it. I had to deal with that hard truth. I had to go to the hospital. They had to cut me open to heal me. They had to do some damage. They had to do something that was painful in order to actually fix me. And now as an adult, I'm glad that they did. I've enjoyed full function of my left arm ever since. I've got ugly scars, but oh well. And in this text, Jesus is coming at people, and he's saying things to them that are difficult because he wants them to get saved. And he's bringing to light some hard truths that they may not, need, they may not like to hear and that we may not like to read. But we have to get real with this. Jesus is not being vindictive. He's not being mean. He is not being cruel. But he is engaging in some tough love. Listen, guys, if you're going to get real, we've got to get real. And so here's some things that you may not want to hear. And so we have to look at what he's saying, and we have to look at who he's saying it to. And to do that, we've got to back up. Because our, our text this morning kind of dives right into the middle of this dialogue that Jesus is having with these people. And it, it, it starts earlier on in chapter 8. And he start, Jesus is, is in this, he's in this conflict with the religious leaders. He's always in conflict. The, the religious leaders are always coming to Jesus, and they're wanting to arrest him and kill him and challenge him and discredit him and make him seem like he's crazy, and so people don't have to listen to him. And so as, by the time we get into chapter 8, Jesus starts using language to emphatically express them, like, listen, guys, you have to, you, you have to get this. You're not in the secure place that you think that you are. And in his love and in his, in his compassion, he's trying to shatter their false sense of security. And that's a very loving thing to do, even if it's difficult. And it starts really in verse 20, in verse 20, excuse me, in verse, uh, where, oh, my page turned. That's why I love, oh my goodness. In, in, in verse 21, Jesus is talking to these guys. He says, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. And we read that, we're like, wow, die in your sin. That's, whew, put some pepper on that one. That's kind of harsh. But he goes on to say the same thing twice more. He says in verse 24, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. This is a warning. He's saying, listen, pay attention. You, you don't want to die in your sins. Unless you believe rightly about me, you will, but you want to kill me. You want to discredit me. You want to have me arrested. You want to throw me away. 
because you think that you're honoring God, but you guys are not getting it. Listen up. You're going to die in your sin unless you get this. And as the, as the story goes on in verse 30, there seems to be a glimmer of, of good news or a glimmer of hope. In verse 30 it says, as he was saying these things, many believed in him. But we've seen this in John before. Saw it in chapter 2, saw it in chapter 6. There's this, there's this excitement, there's this belief, there's this intrigue that someone has with Jesus, but it's illegitimate. It's not true saving faith. They believe something, but they're still believing wrongly. And Jesus pushes back on them here in chapter 8. They believe in him. In verse 31, it says, so, the Jews, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him. Here's who he's talking to. He's talking to people who had believed him. And he said to them, if you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. See, what Jesus does here is he immediately distinguishes between some sense of belief and true discipleship. He separates those two things. You have some sort of belief in me, okay, that's great, but unless you abide, and what abide means is to stick with Jesus for the rest of your life. We will do it, we will be imperfect, we will fumble, we will fail, we will sin, we will blow it, and we may even blow it bad but we will not abandon Jesus. We will abide in his word. This is the word of God to us. We will stick with Jesus. This will be the guide of our lives. As imperfect as it may be for us, as much as we may fumble and fall, we will confess we will be at war in our sin. We won't be comfortable in it. We won't engage in sinful behavior in some sort of lifestyle and be like, I don't care if Jesus doesn't like this or not. I do, and I don't care what he has to say. That's a, that's a scary place to be because you're no longer abiding in his word. You're defying it, you're, de- you're defining truth for yourself. You're taking what's objective and you're trying to make it malleable and that is a frightening place to be. Jesus says if you're truly my disciples, you will abide with him. You will stick with Jesus for the rest of your life. You will never abandon him and even if you do have some fall of faith, you will come back. These things happen. It's it's complicated. Life with the Lord is complicated, and and sanctification is mysterious. But the Lord will always be your king. You will abide. Imperfect as it may be, you will abide. So here's who he's talking to. People who have believed him, and he challenges them. says, well, if you abide, you're truly my disciples. He goes on to say to the same group of people in verse 37, I know that you are offspring of Abraham. I I know that you're physically descendants of Abraham, and yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. So here's a group of people who have some sort of belief in Jesus, and Jesus says, well, if you abide, that's true, but some of you at least actually want me dead. You seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. That's a hard thing to hear. These are church-going people. These are people who are in Bible study with Jesus, and he says to them, you're seeking to kill me. And then it keeps going in verse 44. He says, you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. Listen, you want me dead? You want me murdered? Whatever it is that you believe about me, you actually want me dead because you're of your father the devil, verse 44. And he was a murderer. You want murder because you want to do your father's desires. 
and he's been a murderer from the beginning, and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him, and when he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Ouch. Can we sit in that for a second? That's rough. That commentator speaking about these words said, I don't know what to do with this Jesus. And I think that's a shame. Because this is a beautiful thing. He's, he's, he's loving these guys. He's shaking them. He's not leaving them comfortable and complacent in their false sense of security. He's saying, listen, you guys think that you're in a better place than you actually are. You have not listened to me. You have not paid attention to the miracles, the testimony of John the Baptist. You have been ignoring that. You've been rejecting that. You've been rejecting my word. Listen, start paying attention, please. Jesus is just getting serious with them. And if you're, if you're here today and you're married, you, you kind of know what this is like. You know, I, it seems like marriage is the one relationship where people are just very comfortable being like, your breath stinks, your hair needs to get cut, those clothes don't match, put yourself together. I'm saying this because I love you. I'm not trying to be mean, but you need to, you need to put yourself together. I don't care if you don't like it, get your teeth fixed. You're 25 pounds underweight, eat a sandwich. You look gaunt and scary. We're okay with doing that with our spouses. Tough love. Tough love is the best love because it's real. Jesus isn't afraid to say, I mean, what if that, what if that surgeon had, had had me laid out on the table and had looked at my, you know, my perfect little seventh grade skin and been like, I can't, I'm sorry, I just don't have it in me. This kid's going to just grow up with a, a, a broken arm that doesn't work because I, I, cannot, I cannot cut him. I can't do the hard work that it's going to take to heal him. It's just, it's just too much. I can't do it. That would have been a bad doctor. And I would have been ticked because I would have had a messed up arm the rest of my life. Jesus is too good for that. He's too loving. He cares too much. And I want to make that clear. He's not coming to these people and just being mean. You're of your father the devil, loser. He's warning them. You guys remember that movie? I, I've been thinking about this scene. There was a movie, I think it was 1994, Meryl Streep, uh, Kevin Bacon, John C. Riley. It's, it's called River Wild. And there's a scene where Kevin Bacon's the bad guy, and, and he can't swim. And they're on a river, and, and Kevin Bacon falls into the water, and he's flailing around. And it's, it's common knowledge. Like whenever you, if you're trying to save somebody who's drowning, you have to be a trained professional, because they can panic, and they can grab you, and they can take you down with them. And in this movie, Meryl Streep's husband, I, I can't remember his name, he dives into the water and he, he starts, you know, shaking Kevin Bacon and trying to get Kevin Bacon out of the water. And Kevin Bacon is flailing around and he grabs a hold of the guy and they start to sink. So Meryl Streep's husband grabs him underwater and just punches him, knocks him out, decks him. And then, and, then his, and then his lifeless body, he pulls him up and he gets him onto the boat and Kevin wakes up and he's fine. And Kevin Bacon's character is like holding his head. He's like, thanks for that, man, but you didn't have to hit me. And Meryl Streep's husband says, yeah, yeah, I did. In order to save Kevin Bacon, he had to get punched in the mouth. I mean, what do you, would you prefer, to drown or just to get your chin popped for a minute, you know? Jesus is too good to just go, oh, just let him drown. He loves us too much. He's desperately trying to wake these people up. 
to who he is. Remember in, in chapter 5, he's, he's in this same sort of conflict. And he says to the Pharisees flat out, in the middle of this back and forth kind of argument, Jesus says, I'm saying these things to you so that you will get saved. That's his motive. That's his love. That's his pursuit. What if Jesus was like that? What if Jesus was coming after us and we were like, ah, get out of here. Go away. I don't like you. And he was like, okay, fine. That, I don't want to work that hard for it. Jesus is pursuing these guys hard. Do you see that? I want to make that really clear. I know I'm getting redundant, but Jesus is after these guys. He wants them to get saved. And he's giving them some tough love. He's giving them some hard truths because they need to hear it. And sometimes we need to hear it. He's trying to get these guys saved. And this is how they respond, verse 48. And so the Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? And Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. Here is something to love about Jesus. This is something I love about Jesus. I love what he says here, and I love what he doesn't say. They, they accuse him. They say, you, are we not right in saying that you're demonically possessed, that you're insane, that we shouldn't listen to you? You have a demon, and you're a Samaritan. And some of the commentators point out that they're like, it's interesting that Jesus responds to the demon comment. He says, I don't have a demon, but he ignores the Samaritan comment. And there are some, there are some commentators that were sort of positing different ideas of why that might be because Jesus was not a Samaritan. He was not demon-possessed, but he wasn't a Samaritan either. But he only addresses the demon thing, and I think that it's clear as day why, and I love it. Because them calling him a Samaritan was a cheap, juvenile, puerile, ridiculous racial slur. It was a cheap insult. We don't need to listen to you. You're a Samaritan. And Jesus doesn't even dignify the statement with a response. I love that. I love it. They call him a Samaritan and he doesn't even, he doesn't even respond. He doesn't even take the bait. And if you're, if you're here this morning and you don't know the history of Israel, I, I've, I've got to get into this a little bit. The Jews and the Samaritans did have big beef with each other. There was a huge racism problem between the Jews and the Samaritans. And the reason is, in the history of Israel, they were one nation, and under, when they were one nation, this is going into the Old Testament, they had, it, they had King Saul, and then King David, and then King Solomon. And after that, the kingdom split north and south. The northern kingdom was called Samaria, the southern kingdom was called Judea. Samaria was the capital of the northern kingdom, and so that whole area became known as Samaria. And in 722 BC, the Assyrians came in and they wiped out the northern kingdom. And they took many of the people away into captivity, but there was a remnant of people who were left behind. You can read about this in 2 Kings chapter 17. So after Assyria came, out and came in and wiped out most of the people, the ones that were left behind were sort of left out in the open and were vulnerable, and other pagan nations came in. They intermarried with these Jewish people in the northern kingdom, and they had these children who were no longer pure ethnic Jews. They were this mixed-race people, and the southern kingdom did not like that. 
And not only was there now children who were mixed race, but they, the, these pagan nations had also brought in all these different religious practices and cult practices, and the, the Israelite people adopted those. And so there was this really weird, amorphous religious practice going on. They were no longer pure ethnic Jews. And then there was a few things that happened that, that aggravated that that we don't have time to get into. But then, so at that point, that, that caused a division between the northern people who were of Samaria and the southern people who were still pure ethnic Jews. And that, that, that divide just grew worse and worse and worse over the years. So by the time that Jesus comes on the scene, who is a, a Jewish man, the Jews and the Samaritans had no dealings with each other. You see that in John chapter 4. Jesus comes to a Samaritan woman and asks her for a drink from her bucket. And she's like, whoa, A, you're a dude. B, you're a Jew. We don't have anything to do with each other. What's wrong with you? But because of Jesus' love and his pursuit, he doesn't let stupid racism, division get in the way, and he pursues this woman, and she gets saved that day. He doesn't respond to this cheap racial slur, and I love that. But what he does respond to, he responds calm and cool and collected, and then we kind of see, we kind of get an idea of why he's able to keep his head. And this is really encouraging. He says to them, I don't have a demon. But I honor my father, and you dishonor me. Yet I don't seek my own glory. You dishonor me, but I don't, I don't seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. I love this. Jesus is poised. He's comfortable. He's buoyant. He doesn't, he doesn't bite back. He doesn't insult them back. He doesn't get up in arms. He doesn't get angry. He doesn't get upset. He's got great optimism. And so he can handle it. He can take an insult with stride because he knows where his confidence comes from. He's not seeking his own glory. If he was seeking his own glory, he wouldn't have come here. That's what the devil tempted him with. The devil said, if you just bow down to me, all of this will be yours. Jesus is confident because he knows where his glory comes from. And so he doesn't revile. He doesn't bite back. He doesn't respond in anger. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 23 it says that when Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. And when he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued trusting the one who judges justly. He had confidence in his father. He had confidence in where he was going. He had confidence in the father's plan, the father's provision. And we have the same confidence. If you're here this morning and you're a Christian, it's actually great news. If you get reviled, if you get, if you get jeered at and spit on in the name of Jesus, Jesus actually flat out tells us in Matthew 5, he says, rejoice and be glad. When the world reviles you and speaks all sorts of evil against you because of me, rejoice and be glad for great is your reward in heaven. When people diss you because you're a Christian, they're just giving you pay dirt. You should actually thank them quietly. Jesus has great confidence because he knows where his glory comes from. He doesn't seek it from earth. He doesn't seek it from this life. And we have that same promise as well. Jesus says in John 17, it's called the high priestly prayer. It's right before he goes away and, and is arrested. He's praying to the Father and he says, Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had before the world Began. Jesus knew where he was going, and he had so much confidence in it that he could take persecution in stride. He had hope and buoyancy. He knew that he had eternal safety, no matter how bad it got here on earth. And we have that same hope. 
If you're here this morning and you're a Christian, we have that same hope. Romans 8.29 says, Those who he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. If you've been called by the Lord, if you're being, if you've been justified, if the Lord has, if Jesus' righteousness has been imputed to you and you are saved, you're as good as glorified. Paul, the author of Romans, this, this, who, who wrote this, is so confident in the future glory that he says it, he uses it in past tense. We have that saying in English, we say, consider it done. So sure and confident are we that this is going to get done that consider it already to be done. And that is the hope that we have of heaven. Consider it done. Consider yourself glorified. One more, one more verse, again, in, in that upper room, or in that, in that high priestly prayer, Jesus praying to the Father's praying for the disciples and for those who would believe through the disciples' word, which is you today if you're a Christian. Jesus says, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. And Jesus is coming to these Pharisees and he's saying, don't die in your sins. Enter into the glory. You're invited into the safety, into the security. You are, you're invited into heaven. It's why Jesus came to seek and to save that which is lost. So that they don't have to fight and bicker. So that they don't have to be stressed about their religious practices. And am I doing enough? And am I, am I good enough? Jesus comes and he offers that as a gift. He offers perfect righteousness as a gift. And he's inviting them into it. And they're not paying attention. And so he starts giving them some tough love because he wants to bring people into this glory. And he goes on to describe that as never seeing death. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he'll never see death. Now there's a couple of things here that we, we, have, to, we have to land on, we have to talk about. If anyone keeps my word, he'll never see death. What does that mean? Well, here's the gospel. Here's what that means. To see death means to experience it, to, to, to enter into it, to be in death. In John chapter 3, Jesus is, is having that nighttime meeting with Nicodemus, and he tells Nicodemus, who's one of these Pharisees, he tells Nicodemus, unless you are born again, you will not see the kingdom of God. Not meaning that he won't observe it, but that he won't be there. Unless you are born again, you will not experience it. You will not get in. You will not be there. You must be born again. And what he's saying here is, and if you keep my word, you'll never see death, meaning you'll never enter into it for real. And Jesus has a very specific idea about death. He's not speaking about physical death. He often used normal physical imagery to speak to spiritual truths. He's not saying that you won't physically die. We will physically die if the Lord doesn't come back before that. Jesus is less concerned about physical death because of the hope and the glory that he he invites us into. What he's speaking of when he says we'll never see death is this. It's It's separation from God for eternity. Here's what the Bible teaches. If you're here this morning, if you're if you're listening to this for the first time, pay attention. Here's what it's about. And if you're here and you're saved, then just say yes and amen. The whole point, the whole purpose, where did humans come from? Why are we here? What's going on? God created us to be in a relationship with us. 
The Bible teaches that God is one God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. But the Bible also teaches, this is a great mystery to our minds just because we cannot wrap our heads completely around it, is that God, one God, is existing exists in three distinct persons, the Father, Son, and Spirit, distinct from one another, but unified in their deity. John 1, 1 says, in the beginning was the Word, that is Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. And we go, okay, wait, wait, wait. The, the Word, Jesus, was with God, distinct from God. There was God and there was the Word, and the Word was God. Yes. Three distinct persons that create one Godhead. And as mysterious as that might be, I like to say the arithmetic of heaven doesn't compute fully to us. It's a wonderful truth because it means Father, Son, and Spirit have existed in community for all of eternity. They've been a family for all of eternity. The Lord your God, the Lord is one. But we read in Genesis, God say, let us create man and woman in our image. God is this fascinating, he's one and yet he's a plurality. He's a community. He's a family who has been living in joy and in love with each other for all of eternity. No sin, no manipulation, no lies, no crying, pure joy, pure glory, pure love. And God created us to be a part of that family. He created us to share. He didn't create us, you know, I used to think that he created us because he was insecure and he needed a bunch of little minions to raise their hand and sing songs to him. But that can't be true because he already had community. He already had that joy. He already had that praise within himself because he's three in one. He didn't need us. He didn't create us out of some insufficiency. He created us out of joy. He created us to share. And because he is the life force that we were created for and created from, apart from him, we are cut off from our purpose. And we cut ourselves off from that family with our sin. When Adam and Eve decided to eat that apple, what they were doing is turning their back on God and saying, I'm going to decide for myself. I'm going to be autonomous. Self-law or self-ruled autonomous. I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to be my own boss. I don't need you. I don't trust you. So I'm going to do my own thing. And that was sin. And God is perfect and righteous. So much so that he can't dwell with sin. And he had to cut us off from that relationship. And that relational severing lived out in eternity is the foundation of hell. Because we're cut off from the life force that we were created from and four. I always use the imagery of a rose. One of the, our, our, our neighbors, one of our neighbors took care of Angie and I when we had COVID. She bought us some food and stuff. And so we got her a, a bouquet of flowers as a thank you. And they're beautiful. And there was a bunch of them and they were all, they all, the colors all did really well together. I bought them, so I hope I did a good job. I don't, I don't know anything about flowers. They were, but they were beautiful and they smelled nice, but they were dead, right? And our, our neighbor, Michelle, is going to take those flowers, and she's probably going to put them on a mantelpiece, and they're going to look good for a few days, but they're dying because they're cut off from the root. They're cut off from their source of life, and that is the condition that we're in. We look good. We have ingenuity. We can create things. We have, we have certain prowess that we can engage in, and we can create culture and art and literature and wonderful stuff, but we're dying a little bit every day. It is what haunts mankind. 
It is what philosophers and psychologists have been battling with ever since those practices came into play. What are we doing? We're, we're, we're doing all these things to ignore the fact that we're dying. Why are we dying? Because our physical death is a manifestation of a spiritual reality. We got cut off from our life source. But God wasn't, he, 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 God wasn't content with that. And so he did something radical. John 3, 16, he's, God so loved the world that he sent his son so that whoever would believe in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Our sin, our mutiny caused a debt. It was, it was a wrong that needed to be punished. But none of us could take the punishment because we're imperfect. We are imperfect, wildly imperfect. A perfect sacrifice had to be had, had to be made. Someone who was perfect and no one was qualified. And all over the Old Testament, we see people that were like, oh, is it him, is it Noah, is it Abraham, is it Joseph, is it Daniel? Nope, 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 nope. And so God took it upon himself, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, eternally existent with God, put on human flesh. The Bible tells us that the fullness of deity dwelt in him bodily. He put on human flesh and he came to earth. He stepped out of the safety of that family and he stepped into the murderous, malevolent, hateful, ugly world that we live in and he was murdered by it. He was tempted in all the ways that we are. He knows what it is to be human. He can sympathize with our weaknesses. He can sympathize with our faults because he felt them, but he never sinned. He never sinned in word, he never sinned in thought, he never sinned in deed, and so that holy, perfect righteousness of God, Jesus maintained that in this life. And then he was killed on a Roman cross, and because he was perfect, his sacrifice for sins was sufficient to save, and the sins of the world were put on him. The punishment was had. The punishment that you and I could never pay. The, the punishment that we could never take. We were insufficient for it. Jesus put it on himself in his great pursuit of love for us to invite us into that glory. Sin was punished. But sin wasn't just punished. We didn't just get let off the hook. It's not like God took the hundred bucks and was like, okay, the debt is paid. Now go back to what you were doing before. We get Jesus' righteousness. We don't just get pardoned, we get perfection. That perfect righteousness that Jesus executed on earth, that he achieved, that perfect legal record is given to us and now we have peace with God. We don't just get out of hell, we get into heaven. When we put our faith in Jesus as our Lord and our Savior, that relationship is reestablished by the blood and the sacrifice of Jesus. When God looks at us, one of, my, one of my favorite Bible verses, I say this most Sundays, is in Colossians 1. And it says there that you who were alienated and hostile in mind, me who was alienated, alienated from God and hostile to God, alienated and hostile, he has reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach. And I know how much Portland culture loves to think that we're cool and we don't do anything wrong and there is no such thing as sin, but there is not a person here who can honestly say that they are perfect and blameless and above reproach. No honest person is actually gonna make that claim. 
And that's what it, that is the standard of heaven because God is perfect. And he gives us that perfection as a gift. It's a free gift to those who would put their faith in him, believe in him, be born again, and pursue him, and abide in his word. He becomes our, our, our Lord, our boss, our, and he's our savior, and he's our friend. We get heaven, perfection. Everything in heaven is, is, is our broken nature bent back into perfection. I heard one, one commentator, pastor, say this. He said, that, he said, what's interesting about miracles is that we, can, we think of them as miraculous because they defy nature. But if you think about it, this guy was saying, if you think about it, it's actually our broken world being bent back into its natural state. Jesus comes to earth and he restores broken bodies. He heals sickness. He touches leprosy and he doesn't get contaminated by it. He heals it. He comes into this world and he isn't overpowered by sin and death. He defeats sin and death. Three days after he was killed on a cross, he rose from the dead because he was overqualified for death. His sacrifice was sufficient to save and it proved that he is in fact God in the flesh. Never ever to taste death again and he invites us into that and he says here whoever keeps my word will never see that death and the physical death that we experience here on earth is just going from here to heaven this is the worst it's ever going to get for us we have the hope of heaven the hope of glory the hope of everything bent back the way that it was designed to be no more death no more crying no more sadness no more lying and manipulation and abuse and racism no more of that revelation describes it as a place where there's no more crying no more no more mourning no more weeping for these former things have passed away and jesus is yelling at these guys and saying come come i'm here to die for you i'm here to give you righteousness stop trying to earn it it's a free gift you don't get it you're actually following the devil listen stop rejecting he's pleading with them out of love and he's not afraid to use tough love because his love is that great and his pursuit is that tenacious oh where am i <laughs> oh this is the other thing quickly I think that there's a demonic lie that's floating around. Floating around modern culture, floating around humanity, floating around Portland. And it goes something like this. And I think it's kind of a scapegoat that people use. They go, hey, you know, Jesus, God in the flesh, come to seek and say, you know, nah, I, I, don't, I don't know about that. I don't know about sin and heaven and hell and all that. But I tell you what, Jesus was cool. He was a good teacher. You know, the Sermon on the Mount, that's, that's cool. I like that. He taught empathy. He taught patience. He seemed to have a heart for the minorities and those who were on the outside of, of the outskirts of society, the sick and the, the widows and the orphans. And that's, that's great. I like, I like Jesus. Jesus is cool. The thing is, is that it's, we, you can't do that. You can't honestly do that. And Jesus, Jesus draws a hard line, and you have to be a little bit more honest than that because he says things like this. And C.S. Lewis, who puts everything the most eloquent and the most succinct and the most understandable, said that with Jesus, you have to admit that he is either a liar, he is a lunatic, or he is Lord. Because Jesus said some really radical things, things that only a liar would say or someone who was 
not mentally stable or someone who's telling the truth and should be bowed to and you should give your life to him. He says things like, I saw Satan fall from heaven. He says things like, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He says to people, your sins are forgiven. He says, if you keep my word, you'll never see death. He says earlier in chapter 8 that unless you believe I am he, you will die in your sins. And it's like, well, after a while, you're going to be like, dude, what are you selling? What are you doing? That's a lie. If we don't keep your word, we're just going to see death. If we keep your word, we won't see death. Who do you think you are? You're a liar. Or he's maliciously, he's maliciously and intentionally lying and deceiving people. Or he's just barely able to get himself dressed and out of bed in the morning and he, and he doesn't know where he is. And he's just saying wild things. And he should be kind of pitied, making these radical claims about himself. Or he is the Lord of the universe, the sustainer of the cosmos, and you need to bow your knee to him. He was way too radical to just be a nice guy. We've got to be more honest than that. He is God or he is a lunatic. You can't say things like that and have it any other way. And I'm here to say he's God. Jesus is God in the flesh coming to seek and to save that which is lost. If you're here this morning, listen, you've got to decide about Jesus. And I, I can't do that for you. I can't make that happen. All I can do is plead and say, look at him. Look at him. Read the Bible. Read what he does. Look at, look at what he does. Look at the results of his presence. Look at, what, look at how he treats the maligned. Look at how he treats the sick and the poor and the broken and the feeble. Look at the thing. Listen to the things that he says, his brilliance and his wit he never gets caught. He never gets contradicted. As, as try as his enemies may, abide in his word. Take this and pray that the Holy Spirit, the person, God the Spirit, would reveal to you who he is. And then put your trust in him. Put your faith in him. Not in your health, not in your wealth, not in your prosperity. Those things are great, but they fail. I was in pretty good shape. I could run miles really fast, and then I got COVID, and I lost 25 pounds. My health just went just like that, that quick. Health, wealth, and prosperity will fail. And Jesus comes, and he says, listen, you can have a hope so great that even if health, wealth, and prosperity fail, you have every reason to be buoyant and joyous, every reason to have hope, because you have a hope of glory. Colossians says it this way, there's Christ is in you, the hope of glory, the hope of eternity, the hope of no more sin, no more imperfection. Jesus is inviting us into that. He is God in the flesh coming to seek and to save, and you, we've got to get real. We can't just go, well, he was a nice guy. He, he said things that were way too radical to just be a nice guy. Oh. And the Jews go with lunatic. They go as liar. He says, if you keep my word, you'll never see death. And they say, ah, pfft. Now we know you have a demon. Now we know you're insane. Abraham died as did the prophets. And yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he'll never see death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died and the prophets died. So who do you make yourself out to be? Abraham, the father of faith. He's a big deal. 
We're his descendants. He's our daddy. He died, and he's the greatest ever. So who, who are you? The prophets died. They were pretty great too. So who do you think you are? Did they not keep your word because they died? They're thinking physical death. They're missing the point. They're thinking just physical death. Jesus said to them, if I glorify myself, because they say, who do you make yourself out to be? If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. And if I were to say that I don't know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day, and he saw it and was glad. And the Jews said to him, you're not even 50 years old. And we know from Luke chapter 3 that Jesus started his ministry when he was 30. So here he's 33, pushing 34, younger than me. Oh my gosh, how'd that happen? You're not even 50, and you're going to tell us that you've seen Abraham? Look, take your Bible, open up to Matthew chapter 1. And read the first 16 verses. It's all a genealogy. And it starts with Abraham and it ends with Jesus. There's 42 generations there between Jesus and Abraham. And the number that I, the number that I read, some people count things a little bit differently based on, I don't know, I guess where they went to school. But it's about 1,800 years. These guys are like, you're not even 50. Which they could have said, you're not even 150. You're going to tell us you saw Abraham? That was 42 generations back, man. What are you talking about? And then Jesus comes in with a whopper. I know that I'm over time, but we're only here once a week, so I don't care. (laughs) Jesus comes in, and he's like, oh, not even 50, huh? You guys aren't looking at things the right way. You're not even 50 years old. And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And so they picked up stones to throw at him, that Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Abraham would rejoice to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. In Genesis chapter 3, God comes to, at the time he was renamed, Abraham's first name was Abram. He was renamed by the Lord. God comes to Abram, and he says, in your line, in 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 your lineage, all the nations of the world all the nations of the world will be blessed. And Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob. And when you read the Old Testament, you see that language. God says, I am God, the father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We'll continue down that line, and Jesus is born. And through the line of Abraham, Jesus comes to earth, born of the Virgin Mary, through a miracle of the Holy Spirit. He had no real earthly father. Joseph was just sort of his adopted dad. And all the nations of the earth were blessed through Jesus' work, through Jesus' salvation. And Abraham didn't know exactly what that meant, but he knew it was coming. And he looked forward to it from afar. Hebrews 11.13 has a list of all these people who lived and did great things in faith. And it says in in verse 13, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. Abraham knew something was coming, something that would bless all the nations of the world, and he would have loved to have been there standing with Jesus, and Jesus says, your father Abraham would have rejoiced to see my day. He would have loved to have been here. And you guys are here, and you want me dead. 
and they just push back. You're not even 50 years old. You make yourself out to be this person. Man, you're not even 50, and you've seen Abraham. And then Jesus makes a claim to be God. Before I was really familiar with the Bible, I read this. Truly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And I was like, it's bad English. And they picked up stones to throw at him. Like, they were really mad that he said something weird. I didn't, get, I didn't get it. And I'll close with this. I know that I'm going long. I'll close with this, but I have to go here. Jesus is making a claim to be God right here. When I was very first saved and came to Door of Hope, it was the end of 2010, 2011, and I was sitting with a group of people I had just become friends with, and we were at a restaurant, and we started talking to this guy who was probably in his 70s, and I don't remember how the whole conversation got to where it was, but we told him that we were at this local church and that we were Christians, and some, somewhere in that conversation, he goes, well, that's stupid because Jesus never claimed to be God, and I remember thinking, like, dang it, is that, that's not, that's not true, but I can't, hmm, uh, <laughs> you know, it's somewhere in here. And if you're looking for the words, Jesus said, I am God, you won't find that. But he says it explicitly right here. And it goes back to the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 3. That guy Moses, an Israelite living in Egyptian slavery, and he escapes. He gets saved by, it's a whole, whole story, but anyways, Moses is now, on the outskirts, he's banished because he killed somebody. And so he's out in the middle of the wilderness, and he's a shepherd. He's, he's taking care of his father-in-law's sheep, just minding his own business. And one day, he's out in the, Midian, the Midianite desert, and he comes across a bush. And the bush is in flames, but it's not disintegrating. And so Moses, understandably, is like, hmm, what's going on here? And he starts to walk to, towards the bush, and a voice comes out of the bush and says, Moses, Moses, Moses says, yes, I am here. And he says, take, the voice says, take off your shoes, you're on holy ground. And I'm paraphrasing now, but the voice goes on to say, it's the voice of God, the voice of Yahweh. And he says, Moses, you're going to be my instrument to get the Israelites out of Egypt. It's going to be you. And Moses says, okay, uh, I have some objections. First question I have is, if I go and tell them this, who, who am I going to say sent me? What's your name? And Jesus, God says, Tell them I am sent you. That is how God makes himself known to Moses. He says, tell them I am sent you. And so Jews didn't go around saying I am. That was God's name. You couldn't even utter it. And yet here is Jesus, this 33-year-old carpenter from a little podunk town up the, up the street, saying to the religious elite of Israel, before Abraham even was, I am. Jesus claimed to be God, and these guys knew it, and that's why they picked up stones to throw at him. And I'll close with this. Jesus came to seek and to save that which is lost, and he, and he sought hard. He went after people hard. He went after them, and they, he went after them, and they pushed, and they shoved, and they said, you're crazy, and you're ugly, and you're from Nazareth, you're from Galilee, you're a loser, you're demon-possessed, we don't have to listen to you. And they pushed, and they pushed, and they pushed, and Jesus kept his arms open, and he kept inviting them. And there's this, the last 
mention of Jesus' public ministry in the Gospel of John is at the tail end of chapter 10. And this is what we see. A continued push, a continued conflict, a continued fight with these religious leaders. And Jesus says to the religious leaders in this instance, he says, I and the Father are one. And they pick up stones to throw it at him. They're going to kill him. That's blasphemy. Leviticus chapter 24 says that a blasphemer must be killed. And Jesus says, I and the Father am one. I'm like, that's it. This guy's dead. And with stones in their hand, they picked up stones to throw at him. And this is what Jesus says. If I'm not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you don't believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Listen, even with stones in their hands ready to kill him on the spot, Jesus stops. He's like, yeah, 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 listen, believe, believe. Oh, if you're here this morning and you think you've blown it, if you're here this morning and you think I am beyond God's reach, my sin is too great, my rejection has been too strong, listen, these guys were literally gonna kill Jesus on the spot and he stops them to invite them in. He loves you. He's pursuing you. Put your faith in him. Have hope for all of eternity, no matter what happens here. Look at how messed up this world is. I was preaching here a couple weeks ago and I mentioned that Portland had a 52% increase in, in murder in the last year. That was an old number. My wife and I were looking at the FBI statistics last night. It's an 82% increase. This is messy. This isn't our home. Put your faith in Jesus. Lean all of your weight on him and trust him with your soul. And be glorified. Follow him, abide in his word. This is how good Jesus is. He's, he's willing to engage in tough love and he's even willing to face down rocks that are going for his face. And, he even went, and then he went to the cross out of love, out of a pursuit for you. Jesus is this good, amen? Amen. I went 12 minutes over. Sorry, guys. Um, if you're here this morning, come, come pray. Come talk to me. Come talk to somebody on staff. But let's close out in prayer. Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you that it's available. Thank you that you have given it to us. Thank you that you make yourself accessible. That you stepped out of the safety of eternity in the glory that you had with your Father, and you entered into this mayhem to pursue us, to give us hope, to give us joy, to save us from the, the death that is the result of our sin so that we can put our faith in you and never see real death. We can enter back into that relationship with you that we were made for and that we were made from. Thank you that it's a free gift. And I pray for anyone here who's, I don't know, deciding or on the fence or skeptical, Lord, lead them in a, in a way that I can't. Draw them to yourself. Awaken in them a faith. Bring them to yourself, Lord. And that the staff here and the people here might be available for, 
for that conversation, for that prayer, for that time. Thank you, Jesus, for your love. In Jesus' name, amen.